0: Sugar23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. Hello, everyone. So when I came to America, after I'd won a green card, I headed to New York City. And like most people who need a job, I found a job at a restaurant called the Stanton Social on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and it was like kind of a hot spot. Amy Schumer was the bartender upstairs. I had my first panic attack working there from the crazy hours and having to get up for brunch, so any server will know what that's like to work till 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. on a Saturday night and then have to do the brunch hour. Oh, I mean, it's so brutal. But it bonds you to all these people that you work with Then I moved to L.A. and worked at this other kind of iconic L.A. restaurant called Jelena where I learned really for the first time about wine and food and it was an incredible education and now I'm going to marry a restaurateur in New York City so... New York restaurants are just a part of my experience here and I adore that moment when you're inside a restaurant and it's buzzy and there's a flow. You know, people might be having a shot behind the bar or it's just, to me, heaven. There's so much going on behind the scenes. And so when I heard that there was a book coming out, by one of the best maitre d's in New York City who has literally seen it all, called Michael Chechi Alzalina. I had to get him on Lit Up. He has written this remarkable book called Your Table Is Ready Tales of a New York City Maitre d. And I hope you love this conversation. And a hot tip is that he reads the audiobook, and as you'll hear, he just has a way with words and spares no detail, but also, I mean, is going to tell it as it is. So everyone, enjoy this conversation with Michael and I. I will share that I related to your book so much because I was a server for many, many years and came from Australia, trying to be an actress, came to New York and knew that I had to be a server to make enough money to live here. I couldn't be a host. So I, I'd also worked in restaurants at home, but I went to the Stanton Social. Do you remember the oh, Tower yeah, Group? Oh of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, of this is 2002. It was actually a very good restaurant when it opened. It Poodle. was great. Yeah, it yeah. was delicious. Amy Schumer was the bartender. Of course, we didn't know. Right. That's you know, easy. like the stern, broad, <laughs> and who everyone was scared of. Right. But she was great at her job, you know, and was going on real auditions. But I knew, you know, I said, yes, I, I can be a server. And they were like, okay, okay. And so many of the, the waiters there were like, you've never really done this before. And the thing is, I had, but not at the level that is... A New York City restaurant at 10 p.m. on a Saturday night. Yeah.
1: You know, when I started in the restaurant business, everyone was in the acting business. We were all actors. I don't think there's anyone who wasn't an actor. And that's what you did because it was flexible. You made depending on the house you worked in, you made great money and you go and audition and you can leave for two, three months at a time and no one cared because someone always replaced you. There's always the lunch waiters that would then get an evening shift if you know, one of the evening servers got a gig and they hoped they would get a gig. Yeah, everyone was an actor. That's so changed now, so changed. Really? Well, New York used to be, I think when I was starting out as an actor, there must have been 40 or 50 theaters in Manhattan. On East Fourth Street in the in the village, there were maybe twenty theaters on that block alone. And you went and you got gigs. I mean, most were terrible. You know, you were just but you were, you were applying your craft, you were working, and the opportunity was great. And all the acting schools were in Manhattan. Um, so there were hundreds of acting students and what did they do to make a living they waited tables and you, you all knew who was working where and other the jobs available and you got each other jobs but that's what it was it was servers and you know they're generally actors are very well spoken and look good and it, it was a perfect marriage a real blend
0: well I actually was in a play on East 4th Street <laughs> at the KGB you know under the KGB bar yeah the little theater there and It was like their dream come true, but there was still backstage then. Right. I mean, this was 20 years ago, and the time you're talking about is probably more like the 80s and 90s.
1: Yeah, well, uh, where KGB now is, that was the Terry Schreiber Studio, and they had the whole building that they eventually sold to the, um, what is it, the New York Theater Workshop. And he left the space, which was sad because they had three floors. There was a theater on the middle, classes downstairs. You had a a smaller theater upstairs above the main theater. And you worked constantly. Everyone was acting. And that whole block was full of actors. Yeah,
0: I mean, what a time to be in New York. It's interesting. I was having a conversation yesterday with an author I'm working with who's a voguing champion. And he's going to write a piece about Madonna's Vogue and how actually the ballroom community, give it a bad rap for bringing Vogue into the mainstream and often talk about her taking from another culture. Anyway, his pieces. But we were talking about nightlife then and it coincides with the times that you talk about in your book so much. Can you like take us back? I mean, I'm almost reading your book is like a mini history of the downtown scenes in new york you know when i
1: wrote the book i I didn't want it to be just a story of waiters or restaurants i wanted to tie in to what new york was culturally economically at the time and that i i grew up as an adult in um but i started in 1980 ish and then studio 54 had closed and there were no clubs to take its place. There was the Mud Club, and I have a great story about the Mud Club, but that whole crowd, which were beautiful, wealthy, hip people that wanted to go out, well, restaurants became their their new mecca, you know, and Keith McNally had opened the Odeon downtown, and that was a magnet, and that was beautiful servers and waiters and bartenders and maitre d's, and the beautiful people came, they wanted to be there, see and be seen. So uh, I came of age in that, that milieu, and starting at the Water Club, which became one of the hottest restaurants in the city and everyone went to and clubs were also I mean it wasn't Studio 54 but you were dotted with places like Danceteria and there was oh the one in the church sorry
0: Oh, even I. I'm like, what is that? I've that one. It'll yeah. come to you.
1: Oh my God, it'll, it'll come back to me. But you went out, went out after. But a lot of us would just go to bars, especially downtown. There's a club called Heartbreak that was would play 50s and 60s music and was packed every night. And across the street was a bar called JS Van Dam. And everyone would go to JS Van Dam, go across the street to Heartbreak, and you would party. And all the servers would go, and your customers would go as well. And you would, you would partying hard. You know, this was the time when people would tip you in cocaine. You get a hundred dollar bill wrapped around a, a, a gram of Coke, and they expected you to get high with them and drink a bottle of champagne and go out. And many, many of us did.
0: Well, that transition too, there's a great, very dramatic kind of line in the book that's like, and it was now the 80s and Wall Street, you know, was having its heyday. And just, can you talk about that how those two things coalesced. You also mentioned in the book that with the influx of musicians came the drugs and that first drug was opium and just how that shifted and changed. Right.
1: Well, so I worked at a restaurant called Larousse. It was on Theater Row on 42nd Street. And it was, that was the demilitarized zone. It was no man's land. But a French bistro opened up, and I got a job waiting there because I worked at Playwrights Horizons mm. next to the restaurant, and they couldn't pay me. And so the producing director knew the owner of the restaurant, and said, look, we don't want lose Michael. Can you give him a waiting job? And that was my first job. And it was, there was lots of drinking going on, but we started to do jazz there. And with the jazz musicians, the drugs came and there was coke and there was opium, which I'd never done, you know, I thought that was like an old thing. And so that was around and you had... Easy access to all of this. From there, when I went on to the water club, well, Wall Street exploded. This is when Reagan had taken over and you know, trickle down economics was trickling down somewhat. I'm not sure that that's ever really worked, but the money was fast and loose, and you had a lot of young Wall Street guys and they wanted to go out and they wanted a party. And a party for them were bottles of DP and, and cristal and coke, and it would start in the restaurant because that was the Studio 54. And you didn't go to have dinner. You went for an evening. You know, you went, you went. that was the night. You would show up at the restaurant. You spent two, three hours there. Start at the bar, have drinks, have dinner, go back to the bar, and then go out to another bar, another club. Usually the smaller clubs, the big ones opened. Palladium had opened. MK had opened in in the 80s. They were very, very big venues. But the crowd that I was with, and especially the customers, preferred to stay in the smaller bars. And they dropped a lot of money, and we made a lot of money, and everyone was there to party. That was the time of disco now you would go to work go, go home take a nap go have dinner then go out all night i remember coming home after a shift maybe three or four in the morning i lived in east village and there was a club called the saint on second avenue and as i'd be going home the saint would be emptying out at 4 a.m and the streets would be packed and then at the 4 a.m crowd if they weren't going to work they went to restaurants they'd go have breakfast there Do were a bunch of places florent? of course florent was
0: oh.
1: amazing amazing. I was talking to someone about this the other day, about the meat market uh, area, and it had more life. Florent was the center of it. A restaurant that was populated by drag queens were, were the servers for the most part. And this was, you know, as the AIDS epidemic was, began to hit, Florent would post his T-cell count on the menu board. Oh, you know, it was, um, it was maybe you know, a bit of gallows humor, but it was the reality that we all lived in at the time
0: you capture so beautifully and respectfully in the book that that the contrast to that there is always to an up there's always a down yeah well I know. mean just as you were describing the crystal flowing like I'm getting so hyped and I'm like I want to go out now Michael. <laughs> like where's the reservation you know and where are in New York City at the moment, hungry to find those places.
1: Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure that they exist. They might. I think there are a few around, but not to, to the amount that there was back then. And, you know, if Wall Street fueled it, I think those the guys on Wall Street now, the ones that I know, are much more serious. You know, these guys are really smart. One of my old Wall Street customers said to me just recently that if I had to get a job now, I couldn't do it. He said, I'm not smart enough. These guys coming out, they're just, you know, such brainiacs, and so it's a different crowd of people with that loose money. You know, uh, I'm generalizing here, uh, but th- but the party ended with AIDS. It mm. ended overnight almost, and when that started to happen, the industry, you know, the acting, wor- the performing world, the arts world, the restaurant world yeah. was decimated decimated. We would take a house in Fire Island, a bunch of water club people, maybe twelve of us. And I think in the house eight of the men were gay and one summer going into fall, six had died. It was that bad. It was horrific. And these were young, vital men in the not even in the prime of their life, you know, they were just getting getting to it. They were they were learning and living and they caught this disease that was horrible. You know, you you wasted away and you got Kaposi sarcoma lesions on you. There was a, one of our our bussers, a dear 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 friend. He got infected with AIDS early and he became so emaciated. One of the captains was had been a tailor and he took his busser jacket and put shoulder pads in it so he didn't look so emaciated to the customers. And then when the lesions would appear, you couldn't work anymore. You couldn't. Yeah. And that was sort of the beginning of the end, the Kaposi sarcoma lesions. And so the party just ended overnight. It was done. It was done. And things got a lot more serious. Because they had to, then you go into the '90s and into the 2000s, and I think that's when you start getting the abuse. It's when it wasn't a, a free-for-all party, but you know the owners were partying and managers were partying, partying, and I think preying on a lot of the the people, the underlings, you know, the servers, we servers, we busters who worked in the business, and then all these you know nasty revelations. Also, the, the, you know, the restaurant business was never a really upfront legal business. It was there were so many many ways that, that restaurants got around paying people. You didn't get your, your hourly. You got a shift pay, which is illegal. If you even got the full, you never got the full amount of hours you worked. There was never any insurance. There was no holiday pay. There were no vacation pay. But you took the job because basically you made great money and it was flexible and you could leave. And before the IRS cracked down, servers walked out with a pocket full of cash and never paid taxes on it. And so in the 90s, that all caught up and really legitimized the business to a point where... Restaurants had to follow the rules everyone else had to follow, and it changed the dynamic, uh, obviously for the better, for the employees for the most part, you know. but there's still abuses going on.
0: With that shift of having to account for the money coming in and out, the maitre d' position shifted. Could you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, you know, traditionally the maitre d' was the most learned, experienced person in the dining room, rose his or her way up, well, back then it was just men, but rose his or her way up through the ranks to become the leader on the floor, basically the floor manager. And he oversaw all the service, he oversaw all the seating, he dealt with all the customers, and was the most powerful person person in the restaurant other than the chef and the owner but i think in, in the great restaurants you know chefs the chef culture didn't really start happening till the 60s going into the 70s and 80s and in you know in the 90s and 2000 chefs became celebrities but your front of house people were sometimes much more known than the chef was so the maitre d was the the person that you went to for your reservation made sure service was okay and it was Never a salaried position of any any worth, any value. When I worked at the River Cafe, it was the maitre d' there, I was paid $5 an hour. And you were in the tip pool, and maitres were in the tip pool, and d's got tipped at the door. So the position became very, very lucrative in the better restaurants. What happened when the IRS cracked down in the 90s? The IRS, I guess, must have cracked down on about a handful of restaurants. Petrosian was one of them, and I had a lot of my friends work there. I remember all of a sudden, the, they came in and looked at the books and wanted you to pay taxes on it and what was going on. Remember, the bartender had to pay $72,000 in back taxes, and captains had that kind of money that had to be paid back. So suddenly, everything was declared. Everything was on the books. And the maitre d', since that was on the books and was in a salaried position, well, they weren't about to pay the maitre d a six-figure salary that he was making in tips because also at the same time, when the IRS came in, they said, well, the maitre d' is a manager and not a tipped employee and could not get tips. So they had to be compensated with a salary. And restaurants couldn't afford, for the most part, to give a maitre D a six-figure salary, which a lot were making at the time. So all of a sudden, you started to lose the maitre d's at the door, and you had hosts that were paid minimum wage. And all they needed to do was pick up the phone, maybe make a reservation, and take your name and bring you to a table. They most had no idea of service, had no idea how restaurants were run. And you kind of lost that connection with the person in the dining room who created and made an experience for you. And you had a bunch of kids, for the most part, making minimum wage at the front of the restaurant.
0: just walking you back and forth. I just feel that I can tell... So much when you go to a restaurant, if there's a maitre d' or the owner, at least, acting as that person.
1: Right. Someone has to have to take proprietary... Uh, uh, yeah, a uh, love, uh, a care. A, a care of the restaurant. If the owner's not there, and a lot of restaurants now are run by groups, so who is the owner? They're
0: not there. Yeah, that you really capture, from my experiences, there were... It's such a stressful job. That comes across <laughs> in the pages, and I feel like it's so interesting, isn't it? Because every night starts in the same way, almost, but the outcome at the end of the night can be so different
1: you never know how it's going to go. But, you know, in, in the busy restaurants, you're starting out with the full book, meaning the house is full. And a lot of times it's overbooked because you're doing favors for people. They're saying, oh, the chef needs someone in and oh, I need someone in. And a regular calls at the last minute. And so from the get go, you're juggling things and you're trying to get everyone in and accommodated. And in the, the busy restaurants, it's very, very common. It's very common, but it's it's incredibly stressful. There's, People are demanding. They want to get seated on time. No one wants to wait. You have tables that are lingering and, and all of a sudden they want to order after a dinner drinks. So you need that table. And so it's a constant juggling. <laughs> it's a juggle of getting, you know, f- fitting all the pieces in every night. But it's also exciting. And the adrenaline is crazy. And you learn to love it and and I do did hated it with a passion at times because it's it is kind of crazy and at certain times I'd be in mid-shift and have to walk outside and scream because I had to let it out but you go back in and you put the smile on your face and greet your guest and and you keep it going and a shot of vodka doesn't hurt either
0: exactly (laughs) I wish we had one now (laughs) your entire livelihood that adrenaline that had kind of built your life what happened when that stopped?
1: It well, you know, I, I just talked about the AIDS epidemic when it just everything just ended. The same thing again; it all ended. I remember, I was going to, ta- I was general manager of Raoul's at the time. I had left. Le Cuckoo to go run the door at the Standard Hotel with the Chef Rocco de Spirito and left there to go back to Raul's, you know, of, of all places, but it was always in a home for me. And I remember I supposed to take a vacation on March 15th, and we realized we couldn't go because... Of the You know, this pandemic was starting to spread. And then I think the 17th of March, restaurants were closed and it ended and everyone was unemployed. Actually, I have not worked in a restaurant since then, March 15th of 2020, um, by choice, uh, obviously. But a lot of people didn't have a choice and struggled. It was awful. It was just awful. Customers reached out to me during it. Are you okay? You know, do you need money? It was really fascinating how the the, the love that that you do get, that the business engenders. But, you know, you have so many people, cooks especially, the bussers, nothing, nothing. It was awful. And then finally when you had takeout and all things, things got back. But it's only now, I think, coming back, at least here in New York City, other states and and cities, there was a difference there. But it just all ended. And for me, it ended and I thought... I thought it was over. I didn't think I was going to go back into a restaurant again. You know, I wrote a book. I have two daughters. <laughs> I thought, okay, I'm going to march off into the sunset. But then, you know, I, I don't know, my my older daughter was responsible. She said to me, Dad, now what are you going to do? I said, I have no idea. She says, the only thing you can do is checkies. So I'm opening my own restaurant, checkies, which should open actually in April. Is about one or two months from now. Yeah, so I'm going, I'm diving back into it. And because it's in a, addiction. I don't know what else I would do, you know. I can't wait for that door to open and greet my customers. And, and the ones I that, that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working in the restaurant business in New York City in a very small area. And I've had, for the past 35 years, some of the same customers. And I miss these people. And they, text me, I think they miss me, and I hope they'll come back, but I can't wait to hug people. People were lost without the restaurants. Restaurants are the town halls, they're the public squares, they're where we go to celebrate, birthdays, anniversaries, date, find a date. You know, they are so vital to our culture. And when they were gone, everyone realized this. And the the better restaurants, restaurants that I like, provide an experience for the guest. And I love providing the experience. I like, you know, having the lighting right, and the music right, and, you know, the greeting that you give people the door and providing a meal I mean what it's one of the most fundamental things we can do is to feed someone and to feed ourselves it's sharing in in the life force and restaurants do that I, I might be getting you know no, maybe I a little, agree with you, you know, I feel uh, like there's
0: such a magic to them just sitting at the bar and having kind of quiet chat to the bartender and just yeah. there's something so special about New York too and I think as someone, who was single in New York for so long, you could always go and have dinner at a bar as a woman alone and just have a really wonderful time and feel like the city was yours as well. So where exactly is Checky's going to be? It's going to
1: be on 13th Street between 6th and 7th Avenues in the West Village. It was formerly a restaurant called Café Lou, uh, French for Wolf, L-O-U-P. That was an iconic restaurant. People loved it. In fact, the new food critic for Grub Street just did an article called the New York Happy Meal. And the New York Happy Meal is French fries and a martini. And he said the best happy meal he'd ever had was at Café Lou and I wrote immediately and say, well, you're wrong because the best happy meal is going to be at Checky's in the old Café Loose Base. But, you know, it's, it's the fact that he called it a happy meal because it, it is happy and it makes you happy. Going to restaurants makes you happy. So we need restaurants. We need the good ones.
0: Yeah. Okay. So what are a couple of your favorites right now in New York? Or just like the staples for you? Yeah. So
1: the staples for me are basically the, the smaller restaurants. I don't go out very much. Well, you know, I, I, don't, I say I don't go out very much, but I worked five nights a week. And on my nights off, we maybe would go out one night and we'd cook one night. So I'm, I don't really go out that much. And I don't like to go to the big restaurants because after working in a busy restaurant, I want quiet. Mm. and so I go in the neighborhood and and I like small places and you know, I'm a guy, and I think that diners were always my favorite restaurant growing up, and bars and grills, which which I think was the, the the original bistro to me was these 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 small restaurants. I grew up in Brooklyn, where you had a you know a guy in the neighborhood and his wife or two guys they opened up a bar and they served food, and on the sign it said steaks, chops, and seafood. And I I'd salivate when I see that. In fact, my restaurant's going to be a modern bar and grill, and right in the window I'm putting steaks, chops, and seafood. It's old school and delicious. And so I go to smaller places. Tomorrow's actually my birthday and I generally celebrate it at Finelli's. Mm. And Finelli's is a small, old bar in Soho, and it's noisy, and they got a little back room, and it's fun, and it's, uh, you know, fish and chips and a burger, and it's really simple. You know, Blue Ribbon in Soho, I love as well. People that have worked there for years. James, the legendary bartender, is at the bar. And I can go and sit down and have a great conversation with the great bartender. What I go to, uh, L'Artuzzi, also in Soho, it's a small Italian restaurant. I go there quite a bit, because I know I'm going to get a good meal, I'm not going to be bothered. I'm not going to run into a lot of my customers and, and, and act like I'm working. Because my wife, for a while there, hated going out with me. Because it was like, I'd go into a restaurant and I knew so many people. And I'd be on and you have to work. And she's like, I'm not going out with you anymore. So we try to go low-key. Yeah. Yeah, but La Bernardin just got its fourth star again for maybe the third or fourth time, which I think is the greatest restaurant in the city, if not in North America, and if there's a big celebration, you know, and I'll splurge. But La Bernardin is an incredible place to eat food.
0: Oh, such great tips. So, to go back to your childhood, set the scene at Fran and Lou's and tell us what that is and where it is. So,
1: Fran and Lou is was it was called a candy store and a candy store was anything but. It did sell candy, but they were, I equate them to maybe what the barbershops were in small town America. It, it was but sort of the, 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 not the general store, but it was a, a store where you got your newspapers, which everyone read newspapers back then, and you got your cigarettes and you got candy and it had a counter. It was a lunch counter and it had a couple of booths and a telephone booth and the counter, you, you know, you got, it was a diner, basically, that sold newspapers and magazines and people went there and they hung out and they had coffee and we had the local bookie and he would take book, uh, book bets on horses and sporting events from the payphone in the back and you had a cast of characters and Fran and Lou were a couple that started this candy store and when I started working there I don't think they'd spoken to each other in 20 years and Lou worked the day shift and Fran worked the night shift and a good friend of mine started working there putting together the newspapers back then the newspapers had to be built on for the Sunday paper which was about six inches thick and all the sections had to be put together and so we needed help building the papers and that was my first job. I think I got paid I don't know, fifty cents an hour, whatever. And from there, he this my friend became the manager of the store, and I became a soda jerk, making egg creams and malteds and Coca Colas and packing ice cream, and then a short order cook. I was probably I was so young. I think I started. I was thirteen or fourteen. I could barely see over the counter. Um, There was you know making burgers at night, but it was the first restaurant. I guess it was a restaurant. It had to be, yeah. I worked in, and I loved it. I loved it. And it was a cast of characters. The neighborhood people would come in, and mobsters would come in, and, you know, you had your bookie, like I said.
0: Uh, well, then tell us about Uncle Joe.
1: Uncle Joe. So I, well, I had a couple of Uncle Joes. Um, my real Uncle Joe, I had a, you know, I grew up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, and I kind of joked that in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, you became three things. Sanitation, police. Or mafia. And that's pretty much what everybody did. And a bunch of my uncles, they were cousins, they were connected in some way. There was always, you know, one of my uncles was a bookie, another you know, one always had jewelry, they always drove Cadillacs. Um, and so I grew up in this very macho, think good type of environment, which to me was incredibly colorful. And I, it was, I, these guys would come over on Sunday when, when the ladies would cook and they'd do shots of scotch and whiskey and play poker. And those are my role models, and smoking cigarettes through the whole thing, and it was great. I had another Uncle Joe. My mother worked in a real estate office, and summers I was, didn't have school. We couldn't afford summer camp, so a lot of the summer she would take me to work with her in this real estate office, and every Friday, this Guy would come in, my mother always said, oh, just call me your Uncle Joe, and Uncle Joe would come in, and he'd grab me by the cheek, oh, Mikey, and he'd hand me a dollar bill, which was a fortune. And then he'd sit down at his desk, and then people would walk in, and they'd come up to him, and they'd have a little conversation, and they'd leave. So every Friday, or most Fridays, he would have lunch around the corner at a bar called the 19th Hole, and he'd take me with him. And I'd go, and would say, Mike, let's go get some lunch. And we'd walk into the 19th Hole, this dark bar, this bar and grill, you know, steaks, chops, and seafood. And he'd plop me up on the bar, but as he walked in, there were all these guys in fedoras there that would go up to him, and they'd, give, he'd give them, they'd kiss each other on the cheek, and I assumed he was giving them dollar bills as well. So we sat there, and, and I, one of the things I would get at this place was a pot roast sandwich, which I could remember the flavor of it today, which I'm going to recreate in my restaurant. And uh, it was just a great experience for a kid. I was five or six years old. Jump ahead 10, 15, 20 years later, I forget, and I'm looking at the New York Post, reading it, and the headline is Joe Colombo Shot. And I look at the picture, and that was my Uncle Joe. And I had no idea, you know, that what, what he did, what he had done. Yeah, yeah.
0: What a time.
1: It was crazy. It was crazy.
0: Why did you decide to write the book now? I started writing
1: the book because I have a lot of stories. I've been doing this a long time. And, I, you know, as a maitre d', as an owner, as, as a waiter, you, I love people. I love my guests. And we would talk and I would just tell stories. And I had all these restaurant stories and people would always say, you got to write these down. And when you close a restaurant, after the last table seated, you just have to wait there. And so I go behind the curtain and pull out a computer. I started writing down the stories and I had a lot to write about. So during the pandemic, I got an email from a friend and said, hey, you might want to be interested in this. And a guy named Jeff Gordon runs the writer's boot camp out in California. And he was offering, he was trying to actually, he loves restaurants. and He was trying to pay back restaurant workers. And he offered a scholarship to anyone who worked in a restaurant who was a writer. And someone sent me this. And I thought. Oh, isn't that interesting? Here I am in the middle of the pandemic, not doing anything. And so I applied, I got a scholarship, and I was actually able to finish the book. Wow. And I, I wrote every single day. And I think the restaurant business really suffered from the pandemic because people realized that especially cooks um, didn't want to go back to low-paying jobs yeah. where they didn't have a life and they weren't going to do it, and I don't blame them. And thankfully, wages went up, and people are getting a living wage now to cook food in a restaurant and to manage restaurants. So there's been a real change in the equilibrium of the business, and I think it's much fairer right now, and people are valuing employees right now and understanding that if you're an employee in a restaurant, those 12- to 15-hour days are toxic, and you can't survive in that environment, and it's changing, I think changing for the better.
0: Yeah, like you mentioned in the book, those double shifts that where you'd get, I don't know. 15 minutes between them.
1: But there weren't breaks, it was brutal shifts. Chefs in the kitchen, 12, 15 hour days. You know, there's a a group called the Burnt Chef Project and they were formed because of the mental health needs of chefs and how rough that was. And people are finally realizing and acknowledging it. So there has to be a work-life balance. I
0: still (laughs) dream of managing a couple of nights a week, but I also still have the nightmares. The serving nightmares. Like oh. there's a table that is so angry and needs you, but you just cannot get to them in the dream.
1: I still have a nightmare where a couple came in for dinner and I said, oh, yeah, table you'd be about 30 minutes to go to the bar. And I realized at 11 o'clock when the kitchen's closed, they're sitting at the bar. I haven't seated them yet. I still have that nightmare.
0: Did that ever happen? No. <laughs> no, but there was that no. one couple, the famous ones that – um you sent them to the bar, and they were very upset that they, there wasn't a private room.
1: That, that was uh, Meghan Markle and her handler before she became a duchess. A duchess? Yes. I think that's what yes. she is, yeah. And her handler called and said, we need a reservation. And she kept calling, need a reservation, and finally reservations connected me with her, and, and she says, Michael, this person wants a private room, and she, um, she's bringing in someone from the royal family. So I finally spoke to her, and she says, well, we need a private room, because my The person I'm bringing is very well known and is dating someone in the royal family and she can't be seen. He says, well... I'm sorry, but perhaps you shouldn't want to eat in a public restaurant, but we don't have a private room. Well, do you have a private table? No, there's no private table. We're in a public restaurant. Well, what can you do for us? I said, not much. We're a very busy restaurant. We book months in advance, you know. I'm doing you a favor, getting you a reservation for this. And so she acquiesced to that, and the night of the reservation, of course, they show up a half hour early, wanting their table, which I didn't have. She says, what do you expect us to do? I says, well... You can go, do what
0: everyone does. Have
1: a drink at the bar if you'd like. Well, you we can't go there. It's a public space. says, so, Well, there's not much I can offer you. If you'd like, you can go outside, wait outside. Have
0: a walk around the block.
1: Or we're in a hotel and you can go to the, you know, upstairs in the library of the hotel. Well, no, we'll go to the bar. Well, they went to the bar and. No one cared. No one noticed them or anything. And they eventually got seated at a table with someone next to them and had a I assume a decent dinner and left. But you know, you do get crazy demands. Um yeah, that's the restaurant business.
0: So with your restaurant, you have so much experience about how it's been done in so many different ways. How did you begin to think of how I'm going to do it? You know, is there a I mean this sounds so cheesy, but like pillars of what this restaurant is to you, or is it just very instinctual? No, well, I mean, you
1: have to have an idea of what you want. You know, you have to have a a concept. But that's a great question, actually. And I have a lot of experience. doesn't mean I know what to do. I know what not to do, I think. But you just don't know. And you only get one chance because I'm fairly well known in this business. But if my guests come in and the food's not good and the server's surly and we forget something, they're not going to come back. You know, maybe they'll give me a second chance. I don't think so. So my whole ethos and about restaurants is getting that right first. So for me, it was, you know, it had to be comfortable. The lights had to be right. I had to get the food right. And I, you know, I'm going back to the old bars and grills with steaks, chops, and seafood. I want simple comfort food. Stuff mm-hmm. that I grew up with and... I think a lot of people in New York grew up with and a lot of people in America grew up with, but a classic New York West Village restaurant where it's simple and delicious and you're seated in a warm environment. It's going to be sexy with people that really want to take care of you and want to be there. You know, I, I have a bunch of staff members coming back with me and one thing that I say to them and even my new staff members is that first of all, the place has to be fun and it has to be kind and if we're not kind to you, you're not going to be kind to the guests. And so it has to come from the top, me, my chef, my managers. And then once we get that environment right, and if you're professional and pay attention to details, let's have a blast.
0: That sounds wonderful. And well, i will still see if I can get it right. <laughs> Oh, you will. You will. I, don't know. I it's think
1: a, also now the pressure's on. Oof. I think people are expecting a lot it's from a, me. It's I, a you know. tricky
0: business, isn't it? The stat yeah. that you have in the book is what? How many fail in the first year? I think
1: 80% in one to three years, and then 90% in five years.
0: Then some take hold and they become a part of the culture. The culture,
1: yeah. Definitely.
0: And, like I think of the Odeon, or almost 50 years, Balthazar.
1: Thirty years. Yeah, they they they're part of the culture. They're part of our society. Places that people want to be. You know, McNally is brilliant restaurateur. Stephen Starr, brilliant restaurateur. They know what people want and they provide it. And a lot of places, the the ones that the restaurants that don't succeed, it's. Inexperience, it's absentee ownership, it's not enough money, it's the wrong menu, the wrong concept, the wrong vibe. You know, it, it's a lot of factors at play, and you got to get them all right. You know, you miss one, you're in trouble.
0: Oof. What lights you up?
1: What lights me up? Mm-hmm. My wife and children first. Yes, and then people, everyone yeah. else. It's all. It's always been about the people for me. A- as an actor, you know. I wanted to touch people. And and we do that as actors, you know, especially in the right play or the right film, you give that opportunity. But it's about being part of this communal thing that we call society, you know, and sharing experiences.
0: Are there any books about the industry or the restaurant world that you have gravitated towards or that inspired any way that you wanted to write this book?
1: Well, the most obvious is Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. Sure. yeah. I mean, he set the standard. And Anthony, who I worked with at the Supper Club, one of Buzziocchi's restaurants, way back in the day in Times Square... He's a great writer. I think he's a great writer. And he really set the standard. And I modeled my book on Kitchen Confidential. You know, I, I knew I had all these stories, and I realized that, well, no one's told the front of house story. And that would make the most sense for me. So I went back and reread Kitchen Confidential and saw what he did with it. So absolutely. And then Anthony Friedman has a book called Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll, which is a necessary reading for anyone who's interested in, in the American restaurant growth and the growth of chefs from the 60s on
0: this is a very easy one what do you cook at home when you want to just like have that meal that everyone loves you're so good at that comfort dish
1: pasta and red sauce (laughs) meatballs i make a great meatball that's my mother's recipe that's uh, yeah so sunday not every sunday but i put the sauce on I go to Faicos, which is an Italian store, and I buy the meat, I buy the sausage, I get the tomatoes and the cheese, and I go home and make sauce.
0: Is there a special technique that you have that's different to anything? You've... It's
1: my mother's technique, you know, as a Sicilian lady. Born in America though, but you know, the meatballs were, were, were um, beef, veal, and pork was a blend, a little bit of breadcrumbs, used water to soften it. The sauce is pretty basic, I guess, but got to cook a long time. Tomatoes, basil, cheese, mm. you know, Romano cheese, the meat in there, they has to be seared right, seared well, cooked for three, four, five hours.
0: Oh, yum. People smell it
1: down the hallway. (laughs) That's what I might try That's my comfort food. I I cook Italian at home for the most part.
0: Will you have that at your restaurant?
1: No. Okay. No. But to be continued.
0: Okay, excellent. Yeah. Well, what a treat. (laughs) It's it's lovely to talk to you. Yeah, I could talk to you for hours. (laughs) Thank you for this conversation and again your incredible book everyone listen to the audio version particularly to hear more of michael's voice your table is ready lit up is a podcast from sugar 23 it's hosted by me angela Ledgewood, and is produced by liam billingham Olivia Allmayer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andrei Radovsky wrote the theme music. See you in two weeks. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.